You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington, DC, and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley, one of the pastors here, and uh, delighted to be with you as we continue through our sermon series in the book of Romans, which we kind of planted ourselves uh, more firmly, at least for a little bit, in Romans chapter 8. Now, um, there's moments in life that we all probably go through in which the pain of those moments become a distant memory because of the, the result of joy that it brings. And our text today actually gives us an illustration of that through that of childbirth. Now, it's something that I can relate to. Obviously, I'm not a woman, uh, and I have not given birth to our children, but I was there when it happened. Uh, so that counts for something, right? And um, I remember specifically uh, the, the second, this is the, the second birth, uh, Har- Harper, our second child, and um, we get to the hospital that night. Oh, go back to the first one first. Let's just focus on uh, this evening for the moment, um, and then we'll look at her beauty later. So we're sitting there, and, and we get to the room, and look, hey, I, I'm, this is round two. I know what I'm doing, right? I know that a husband is supposed to be there for their wives, there to help. They know the breathing techniques. They know how to support in every way possible. That is my duty. That is my job. Um, and so I get there, and, and, and I'm, I'm ready for action. Well, then I sit down for a while on those incredibly uncomfortable benches that they call couches in the delivery rooms. And as I'm sitting there in the middle of the night, I begin to doze off into a very deep sleep. I came to as the doctors and the nurses start rushing in the room, turn on the spotlight and say, all right, it's time to push. And so what I do? Well, as the hero that I am, I leap to action. I spring off that couch as fast as I can, knowing this is my moment to be there. And I immediately begin to black out. (laughs) And the next thing I come to is the nurses leaving my wife as she's in pain, push, <laughs> bringing a child into this world. Let's not get too graphic, but she's in pain. They leave her bedside to come care for me <laughs> as I'm about to fall out. So they bring a chair under me. They go and they get me a Welch's grape juice. Shout out to Welch's <clears throat> to help me. All the while, Abby's on, on, on the table there delivering our child <laughs> into this world. Uh, and it was so bad, I couldn't even help her. They made me uh, stay in the chair the whole time. Um, so... I share that story with you, and some of you heard this before, because I think it is a great illustration of what we see in our text today and what Paul wants us to see. You see, in in the experience that I had, uh, the mother, my wife, and you can go to the next picture here. We'll look at the beautiful child. Uh, There's Harper uh, right after she was delivered. Uh, Look, my, my wife was more in tune with suffering than I was in that moment. The reason is because uh, the, the whole process kept her awake because she was in the pain and the suffering of delivering new life into this world. Uh, she experienced it differently than anyone else. And, and Paul's point, and actually, actually using this illustration to some degree in this passage today, is to show that this is actually an illustration for how we should deal with suffering in our lives. It, it's a reminder that the, in a fallen world, pain and suffering is inevitable. The groans and the pain of this life will touch all of us. And Paul's not addressing today pain and suffering to belittle it in your life today. He, he's not addressing it in a, situ- in a situation to, uh, to, to just tell you to get over it today. 
No, he actually wants to give you a bigger vision of it today. He wants you to see that just like childbearing, your pain, although real, and although it's something that we experience, is temporary, and it leads to something very real that we will experience, an eternal glory and joy. That just like childbearing is a real pain that then brings forth a joy, a life, a new life, the sufferings in this life that we experience are very real, but they are temporary to bring forth a very real future, a glory and a joy that is everlasting. And that is really what our main idea today is from this text. It's going to come straight from really verse 18, that our present suffering, our suffering in this life is not worth comparing with glory. It is not worth comparing with the eternal glory that we will experience. That eternal glory is, is, is so not worth comparing that Paul's going to show us that it's not on the same playing field anymore. It is not on the same level as some of the football teams yesterday. We're much better than others, okay? It, it, it doesn't hold a candle. We're not talking about the same. It is not worth comparing. And, and this chapter 8 is just filled with these incredible promises to the Christian. Right? We started last week with this, or excuse me, a few weeks ago with the promise that there is no condemnation for the believer. That if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, you do not have to fear condemnation. You have been set free. And then next week, we're going to end this glorious chapter with the promise that there is no separation from the love of God. But in the middle here, what we find is a glorious, life-changing promise that there is no comparison for the believer when it comes to our suffering and what God is doing in this world and what he has already accomplished for us. And so to understand what is really, I think, a hard thing for us to grasp this morning, how our suffering, as real as it is, how our suffering is not worth comparing with eternal glory, to understand that we're going to look at three things from the text that I think are going to help us kind of mold our minds around this, this beautiful promise given to us that there's no comparison in this life. Number one, we have to deal with the reality of suffering. Our text is going to address that pretty head-on this morning. Number two, got to see the resources for suffering. So when we suffer, God has not left us. He has provided a way for us to deal with it in this life and to overcome in this life. And then thirdly, we'll see the reassurance that God promises us in the midst of our suffering this morning. So let's go ahead and dive into the text. Verse 18, Paul writes this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, right out of the gate, Paul is telling us that as Christians, we have to face suffering head on. And we have to name it for what it is. He says in verse 18 that there is no denying that suffering will happen in this life. He says it very clearly that in this present time, we will have suffering. And then he expounds upon that, and he says it's not only just you personally today, it's the whole world. Verse 20, that the creation is subjected to its futility. 
Verse 20, 21, all creation, the entire cosmos is in bondage. And, and then in verse 20, uh, 22 and 23, he talks about how not only is creation groaning out with these pains of childbirth, but we ourselves are groaning. Now, all this is, is really pointing us back to the beginning, right? It, it's, 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 it's hearkening back to Genesis. And we see in the beginning is, is what we call the curse of sin, right? In the beginning, God creates Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, and they're living in the garden, and they're living perfectly in harmony, spiritually, emotionally, physically, perfect harmony with their God. But then our first parents do exactly what we would have done if we were in their shoes, they sought independence from God. They wanted to be the master of their own souls. They wanted to be their own God. And what that did was it created a firestorm uh, in the early chapters of Genesis. And because of their sin, there's, there's this uh, outpouring of a curse that happens. It, it, we, we, we call it the, the fall, right? And that curse of sin in the early uh, chapters of Genesis was not just pronounced upon Adam and Eve, but it was pronounced upon all of God's good creation their work is going to suffer. Their relationships are going to suffer because of sin. The creation itself will begin to fall apart and break down because of sin. This is the condition now that the whole universe is in because of, uh, of Adam and Eve. It's inherited from our parents. And so Paul elaborates on this, and he says that it is now causing God's good creation to groan as the pains of childbirth. Now, that word groaning uh, is a unique word used in the Greek language. It, it's, a, it's a word that's, that, that's to be understood as someone who is facing death. It is someone who has the pains of death in their soul. Think of it in this, in this sense. You're on a battlefield, and the dust has settled, the smoke is starting to clear, and there's wounded soldiers on the ground. And what are they doing? They're groaning in pain. They're groaning in pain because they are facing death. They're groaning as someone who has exhausted their strength and all their resources. And that's how Paul speaks of creation. He says creation, at this point, creation that points to the very glory of God, that tells the beauty of the glory of God, is groaning out, is crying out for his own redemption. And we can see this, and the reason why it's crying out for his own redemption is because when we look at creation, it's revealing something to us. It's not only revealing God's glory, it's also revealing that this world is not the way it should be. It's telling us a story. But he says, you don't have to look outside necessarily to experience these groanings. Just look within your own soul. Paul says that we too are groaning in verse 23. And what he means when he talks about us, he's talking about Christians here, those who have received the Spirit. And when we receive the Spirit, when we become a Christian, we receive the gift of God's Spirit, we get a foretaste of his glory. He calls it the first fruits of the Spirit here. And it's an agricultural term. Uh, when, you, when you have a harvest, you would gather them the first day of the harvest, you would gather the first fruits. And typically what you would do, whatever, uh, maybe it's blueberries or name, name your favorite fruit or, or vegetable, whatever it is, and they're going out and you're gathering on the first day of the harvest, guess what you're going to do? You're going to take some for yourself on that first day. You're going to taste, get a foretaste of the fullness of that harvest. That's the first fruits. And, and Paul is saying this is what the Spirit does. It gives us a foretaste of a glory of a world to come. When we know Jesus, we have a foretaste of a world of healing, a world where there will be no uh, more tears, a, a, a world where there will be no more pain and no more suffering. And once you taste that glory, guess what that does for your soul? It makes your soul groan. It makes your soul cry out. It makes your soul long for that. 
so that when you see what's happening in your life and you see the breakdown of what's happening in this world, it groans because you too know within your soul that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. But you don't have to be a Christian to feel that groan within, right? On some level, we all feel it. No matter what beliefs you walk in here today, no matter what background you have, no matter what experiences you've had in life, you've felt this groan, right? When, when life just doesn't go the way you planned it out, you feel that groan. Or when very tragically you lose someone you love way too soon, you feel that groan. But you know what? It's not even in our, our, our worst moments that we feel that groan. It's actually in our best moments in this life we also feel that groan. It's in the moments, you ever had that moment where it's just such a, a transcendent moment of life that you just say, I wish this moment would never end? Right? And, and you try to do everything you can to extend that moment. You try to do everything you can to hold on to that moment. But guess what? Inevitably, it slips through your fingers. Because there's a transience to beauty. There's a transience to the good things that we experience in this life. And even in those moments that we try to hold on to, but we can't quite keep them, it causes a groan within us. This world is not the way it's meant to be. So how do we handle that? How do we come to terms with this reality that we have this groaning within us and the creation itself is groaning, there's suffering in this present age? Well, there's a few ways in which we can try to deal with this. In some ways, we can try to have an escapism mentality, uh, an illusion that it's not real. This is typically something that you see in kind of uh, Eastern religions, right? Think Buddhism for a moment, right? Uh, When you see suffering, it's actually just an illusion. It's not real. It's not really happening to you. It's just an illusion of something that's happening. So you have to just rise above it. You have to dig deep within yourself to overcome that circumstance. So that cancer you're facing, that unemployment you're facing, it's not really happening to you. It's just an illusion of something that's happening to you. And you have to deal with the circumstances circumstances by removing yourself from that, by trying to rise above it. We just kind of have an escapism reality. Or you can, you can do what the, the Greeks and the Romans were really famous about doing. And one of the, the, the main uh, philosophies of the day that I still think impacts our society tremendously, and that is stoicism. You can deal with suffering by just saying, you know what? I'm not going to show any weakness in my suffering. A, a stoic's philosophy is that if suffering comes, the best thing you can do, the moral thing you can do is do not groan, do not cry, do not com- complain, suppress it. Act as if it's not even happening to you. But Christianity is the opposite of both of those approaches. Christianity, and Paul writes here that on one sense, look, we don't try to rise above it and act like it's not happening. And and we don't try to suppress it. No, we have to honestly deal with it. See, the reality is we have to come to the reality that suffering is inevitable. We're all going to deal with it. We have to be able to see it and honestly look at it and name it for what it is which means that we have to deal with it in this life, and, and we also have to respond to it properly in this life. We don't suppress those feelings. We should groan when suffering happens, when pain happens. We should have a response to those things, because that's how God has created us to be, which leads us to our second point here. If we come to an honesty that there is a reality of suffering that we have to deal with, it, then what are the resources that God has given us for suffering? As a Christian, how can we actually experience suffering and have resources to go through it and not allow it to crush us and not have to try to suppress it or try to escape it as if it's not happening? Well, there's two that I think this passage gives us. Number one, it gives us a future hope to look forward to. A future hope that can help us in our, our moment of suffering. A future hope to direct our eyes toward. Look at verse 24. He says, For in this hope we were saved... 
Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with what? With patience, he says. And and what is he referring to when he says, now this hope that we're saved in? He's going all the way back to the beginning here in in verse 18. He's reminding us again that there is a glory that is going to be revealed. A glory that is not worth comparing to our sufferings. Again, he's reminding us, if you put a scale up here on uh, on on this podium, and you say, here are our sufferings, and here is the glory that's going to be revealed, he's saying, our sufferings are like a feather to a boulder. Not worth comparing. Now, how do we get there? Well, he says, because we have this future hope. We, we have this future hope that we can, as Paul's saying here, we can look above the horizon and see that there's something in our future that it can actually impact our present. We, we were saved by this future hope. Now, when we think about the word hope, there's really two ways that we can see this. We can see it through the lens of kind of a secular worldview, which is more just like wishful thinking, right? Uh, it's like I think saying, like, I hope I don't lose my job, right? I really do. Um, <laughs> Don't say anything crazy, Wesley. I, I hope that someday I'll be happy, right? When we say these things, we're saying that, that there are hopes without guarantees. That there are things that we can hope for without certainty. And that is really how our, our culture uh, operates with hope, right? One anthropologist, Richard Shooter, wrote, wrote years ago, and I think it's still so true. He says, I can say with confidence that all the cultures in history and all the cultures in the world today, there is one culture that gives its members, who, by the way, has the most resources for happiness, it gives its members the least resources for facing suffering, and that is our modern Western culture. And the reason he addresses this is simply saying you can look throughout history and you can see uh, the roots of history and cultures, whether it, it be Christianity, Buddhism, uh, the Greeks or the Romans, they all believed that there was something beyond this life. And because of that belief, that they were able to have some sense of hope. But in a secular culture, we don't believe that. Uh, we believe that all that we can obtain for happiness is right here. Our happiness has to be rooted in the moment. It has to be rooted in this life which is why hope is in such short supply in our society. Because what happens when that that happiness is threatened? What happens when that happiness is taken away? There's no remedy. There there is no consolation for those moments. Because at the end, a, a world and a mindset without God is death. That is the end. There is no hope on the horizon. What Paul is saying, that is not how we look at hope as Christians. That's not how the Bible addresses hope. When he talks about hope, he's talking about a sure thing. What Paul is saying is that our future, what we see in our future, is going to dictate how we deal with the hardships in our present. And the perspective that he's trying to get us to have is to say, wake up and look, not, not at yourself, but look at the macro story of what God is doing. Look at the story of redemption. It is heading in a hope-filled certain direction. And we, as N.T. Wright says, we are the ones who can kind of stand on our tippy toes with creation and anticipation for that. We have a certainty that the glory that is in our future will be revealed. It will come. And because of that, that can help dictate how we respond to the present suffering that we have because we have experienced the first fruits of it now and we know that we're going to get the fullness of it later. That's hope. That is a future hope with certainty. But notice that he also says here, I think, that we have a present help. We don't just have a future hope that helps us keep our eyes focused on the prize when we go through suffering, but we have a present help to actually empower us to go through it. And that is the Spirit of God. 
Look at verse 26. Notice the assumption that he's making about humanity in verse 26. He says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So what's the assumption there? The assumption is that we're all weak. The assumption is that no one in this room has the ability to escape human weakness. And God knows this. And that's why in a world that is filled with pain and suffering, that we experience the, the weightiness of our weakness, in our weakness, he sends a helper to us. He sends his spirit. And there are three things I think this text can kind of help us understand how the spirit empowers us and helps us presently in our suffering. Number one, he provides certainty for us. He provides certainty. And we have to kind of go back to what Ben was talking about last week to see this, but I think it fits in the full picture of what Paul is communicating in these few verses here. He provides certainty because he's testified to the fact that we are children of God. If you look back at verse 16, it says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, what? That we are children of God. He bears witness. He testifies that we are children of God. And then again, verse 23, he talks about this, that we eagerly await what? Our adoption as sons, meaning true sons, those who will receive inheritance, both men and women alike, those who put their faith in Christ. We have that hope. And what the Spirit does is it testifies to that in us. It provides a level of certainty when we go through suffering. Because in Roman culture, if you were adopted, right, you, you would have to have, to have a witness uh, in order to make that valid. So if, if, if you were to adopt a child, you would bring a witness to bear testimony that adoption took place so that if any time in the future someone would question whether that child was a true child that could inherit uh, your inheritance, you could bring that witness along to, to testify to the fact that, yes, that is a true child of mine. This witness would come along and testify that that person deserves all the rights of a true child because they've been adopted. And that's what he's saying the Spirit does for us. You see... There are times in life when you go through suffering when it's inevitable you're going to ask questions in your soul. I don't know about you, but I've had those questions. Questions like, does God really love me in this? Or, or questions like, has he, has he left me? Am I orphaned? Or questions like, am I really his child? And in those moments of weakness, the Spirit comes to provide certainty to answer those. It is in those moments that the Spirit comes when all things can creep into our minds when we're suffering that God, through his love, sends his Spirit to remind us that, yes, you are a child of God. Yes, you have been adopted. Yes, you are loved. And the primary way he bears testimony to our souls is not through some kind of compilation of experiences and feelings, but through his word, through the certainty of what his word says about who we are. The Spirit comes, and in our prayers, he testifies to the truth that we are his children. And when you're going through moments of suffering, you look to the word of God. And this is what the Psalms do. The, the Psalms are like a book uh, of just one after another that testifies to this reality, that in the moments of our suffering, the Spirit can point us back to who God is. And in those moments of, of pain and suffering, the Spirit can remind you, yes, God is faithful. All my life, he has been faithful. He brings that level of certainty to us. But next, he also provides intimacy. You notice in verse 26 that there's also a level of intimacy that he provides, and this is what I mean by that. He used that word groans again. Look at verse 26. He says, for, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with what? With groanings again. Too deep. Wordless groanings. Groanings too deep, he says, for words. Again, that word groan is the pains of death. What is Paul communicating to us? that when you go through suffering, 
The Spirit doesn't leave you. No, He's intimately involved with you. That means when you go through suffering, in a sense, He is there with you. Like a good parent, when you see a child who is suffering, the one thing you want to do is you want to enter that suffering with them and to provide comfort for them. And that's precisely what God does for us. That in those moments, he is intimately involved in our pain and our trials, and he runs to us with comfort and compassion. doesn't mean he's always going to take the suffering away, but it does mean that he will comfort us in the midst of it always. Because he loves us. He's our father. And he runs to us by his spirit with intimacy and compassion and healing when we're in those moments of pain. He groans with us. But then thirdly, notice in this verse that he also provides advocacy for us. When you're in the middle of suffering, the present help is that the spirit is interceding for you. That the spirit is advocating on your behalf. Look at verse 26 again. When we do not know what to pray for as we ought, the spirit himself intercedes for us. And then verse 27, it says again, the spirit intercedes for the saints the children of God according to the will of God. What amazing statements. What Paul is saying here is that when we're in the middle of our sufferings, when we're in the middle of our pain, when we don't know what to say, when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit says, I've got you covered. The Spirit says, I will pray on your behalf. And guess what? I know exactly what you need. That's what he's promising. That in those moments, when we don't know what to pray and we don't know what to do next, the Spirit says, don't worry. He comes and he will pray in a way to give us exactly what we need, whether we want it or know it. Why? Because verse 27 says, it is he who searches hearts. It is he who knows us. It is God who searches hearts. The best way I think I can illustrate this is that of going to a doctor for a checkup. So when you go to a doctor's visit for a checkup, the doctor is searching for things, right? He's, he's probing for things. He's looking for things. He's looking for those potential silent killers within us that would harm our life. And so what does he do? Well, he begins to probe, and he may say things like, open your mouth, say ah, and then he'll look in your ear, right? And then he'll stand back, and what will he do sometimes? He'll go, hmm, hmm. What is the doctor doing? He's groaning. He's groanings with, in a way that is in, too inarticulate for words. And in those moments, you don't understand why he's groaning, but, but by his tone, you get a sense. You at least get a, a little bit of sense that, hmm, maybe this doctor knows what he's doing, right? You get a sense that the doctor is up to something, that he's up to something that you don't know, that he has a wisdom, and the reason we go to a doctor is because they're trained in that, that he has a wisdom that you don't have. In those moments where he sits back and groans, you look at that doctor and you think, well, he's up to something. Maybe he sees from a vantage point that I can't see. Maybe he's able to diagnose something that I do not know about my body. Maybe he's able to predict something about my health that I can't predict is going to happen. And that's precisely why we need God's help through the Spirit in the midst of our sufferings. Because when we depend on him, listen, even when we don't know what God's up to, through the Spirit's groaning within us, what we do know is that he has the big picture in mind. Even when we may not know exactly what's happening in that moment, the Spirit's groaning reminds us that he has a wisdom that is far beyond our wisdom. 
The Spirit's groaning reminds us that he has a power that is far beyond our power, which is our present help in times of need. And I think it leads us to our final point here, reassurance in our suffering. We have to come to terms, guys, that all of us in this room, no matter where we are in life, no matter how, uh, how our life has gone so far, we will all face suffering. It's a reality. But God has not left us alone. He has resourced us to go through that suffering. He is there with us intimately, providing certainty, providing advocacy for us, providing a future hope to direct our eyes towards all that is leading to this moment where we can be reassured in our suffering of God's promises. Look at verse 28. For, uh, and we know, he says, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Up until this point, we're reminded time and time again by Paul that our groanings, the groanings of this world, leaves us with perplexities and things that we do not understand. And verse 26 says that we have those moments where we just cannot understand. We don't know. And that's why the Spirit comes and he helps us in those moments of weakness where we just can't understand. We can't fully predict and understand why this is happening, why we're going through this. But notice the contrast of verse 28. Paul says, even in those moments of those perplexities in life, those pain, the sufferings where you just don't know, you don't have the words to pray, you don't actually see the full picture, he says there is something that we can know for certain. He says, we know, it is certain, there is a reassurance of a promise here that for those who love God and know his love, all things work together for good. That is the reassuring. That is the reassurance that we have in suffering. That when the things that break down and we don't know, we don't have words to comprehend, the Spirit is groaning to testify to God's character to remind us something that we do know. That in that moment, he is working all things for good. Now this is a very famous verse and often misunderstood. So I just want to take a few moments to to try to draw some implications of how we can apply this to our lives this morning. Notice Paul uses a very, very profound statement. He says, all things things work. Let's stop right there. All things. Going back to the reality of suffering, here's what we have to come to terms with today, Christian. All things can happen to you. Let's just sit with that for a moment. Because I think sometimes we, we want to tell ourselves, no, all things can't happen to me. God would never let that happen to me. Right? No, no, I'm a Christian. No, he says all things. And, and if, if you want some Uh, some ways to to back that up, just look at the story of Job. Look at the life of Jesus himself. Uh, Go go just read down your Bibles to verse 35 in the list that he gives that we'll study next week. You you see, part of the agony that we experience when we suffer as a Christian, I think, comes from being surprised that suffering is actually happening to us. That we come from this vantage point that things should just go right in life. And and that things should just always happen in in those ways. And when things go wrong, that means that there's something off. So we have someone else to blame because the normal rhythm of life is things should go right. But Romans 8 says the exact opposite. Romans 8 says, no, normally things are falling apart around us. And when things are held together, when we experience goodness, that is God's doing in our life. He is the one working that goodness in our life. 
And so the way we look at the world is not through the lens of everything should just be right, and if something goes wrong, uh-oh, I had to blame someone for that. No, no, the way we look at the world is that everything is breaking down and unraveling around us, including our own hearts. But God has intervened. And every moment of goodness we experience is an opportunity to praise him. So you notice he says, look, look, all things can happen. So guess what? When, when you go to bed tonight and your health is still intact, right? That's not normal, okay? Your body is breaking down. My body is breaking down. But that's a moment to say God is doing something. He's working together with things for good. When you, when you have a relationship that goes well and someone tells you they love you and you have an intimacy with someone, that's not normal because our souls, our hearts are selfish and prideful and relationships tend to break down. That is normal. And when we see that goodness, we should praise God, say God is up to something. He is working things for good. But notice what he doesn't say here in the text. He doesn't say that he, uh, he makes bad things good. Right? No, no, no. He doesn't say that he makes bad things good. He says that he is actually bringing good things out of the bad. And that's very important to understand that when we look at the sufferings of this world, we don't look at bad things. I'm not just here to give you another platitude right, when you have something bad happen in your life, just to say, well, you know what, there's a silver lining in every cloud, right, or there's a blessing in disguise with what's going on in your life. No, 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 that bad things are bad things, right, and and Jesus understands this very well, and the best picture of this is actually in John chapter 11, when Jesus is going to the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, and he is going, and, and his friend Lazarus has died, and as he's approaching the tomb, you know what John says in John 11, he says as he's walking up to it, he is weeping, and his soul is filled with trouble. Why, Jesus? Why aren't you smiling as you walk to the tomb? You're about to raise him from the dead. Why aren't you telling people, hey guys, this isn't really that bad. We're all going to be excited in just a few moments when I raise him up from the dead. Why isn't Jesus smiling as he's walking to the tomb? Because Jesus realizes it's not good. Death is not good. The pains of death is not good. He doesn't walk to that knowing that he's about to resurrect his friend. He doesn't walk there smiling. He walks there weeping. Because Jesus intimately understands that because he too entered this world and experienced that death himself. And he experienced that suffering himself so that one day all the evil and suffering will will, will end without ending us. He knows what it's like to hate the place of death. So he doesn't just make the bad things in your life to say, look, hey, you need to look at those things as good things. No, 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 no. He sees those things as bad things, but he's telling us that all of it, all of it in its complexity, all of its totality is going to work for good. And the reason we can say that today is because our circumstances, look, when we look at our circumstances, we should see those through the lens of what we know about the character of God. We should draw conclusions about the things that we go through based off of what we know about his character. And what we know about his character from this text is that he is working all things together for good. And if you want to have the reassurance of that promise, then you've got to begin to rest in God. Don't put him on a timer. Don't say, well, God, I'm going through this, but in a week, if I'm still going through this, I don't know if I can believe in your goodness anymore. Or in a decade from now, I don't know if I can believe in your goodness anymore. No, no, to, to feel the reassurance and the weightiness of this is to rest in God's agenda. Not even your understanding of what he's doing, but just to rest in who he is, his character. And when you do that, we begin to see the reassurance that even though, listen, even though we don't know what the Spirit's up to in our lives in this moment when we're suffering, even though we say it can't see the full picture, what we do know is what he knows. What we do know is that he has a plan. And what we do know is that as this text, we'll, we'll close here, as this text is pointing to, that we have a glory trajectory. 
we have somewhere that we're heading. Something that can remind us that in those moments we can be reassured and live with the fact that God is good and that what he knows is greater than what we know and that his perspective is much bigger than our perspective. If we ever lose sight of that, we look to the fact that he demonstrated his goodness by his own sufferings. That he came and he suffered on your behalf. And guess what? Listen, when Jesus was on the cross and he was patiently enduring your suffering, there were probably people at the foot of the cross that looked up to Jesus and looked at Jesus the same way we look at our suffering and say, how could any good come from this? And they probably walked away saying, how could any good come from this tragedy? And yet they were looking at the, very, the, greatest, the greatest display of love and redemption the world has ever seen. Any moment that we doubt, we should look to the fact that Jesus suffered for us, meaning that I don't know the reason why you're suffering, but I know what it isn't. It isn't because he doesn't love you. Because he's already displayed that for you. He's already proven that for you through his suffering. That he loves you, that he's willing to enter in your groaning, your groaning of your soul. He's, he's willing to enter into that for you so that you could have glory. Let's end here as we come to our time of the Lord's Supper. Verse 29. Look at the final outcome. But those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called. For those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, there's a lot of big words here, and we're not going to miss the forest for the trees today, okay? Uh, so we're not going line by line here uh, to explain all this. But here's what he's saying. Let's look at the big picture here. He's saying God foreknew. That word foreknew is, a, is actually a medical term. It's, it's where we get our term prognosis from. God looks out and he sees uh, the outlook of our health in the future. And he predestined us, that is a biblical word, he predestined us to something. He predetermines something of health for us. And what is that? He says it is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That is the end game. That is the reassurance of the promise for us this morning, that we have a destiny in mind, and that is that we are conformed to the image of our Savior. And he doubles down on that again. And he says, the goodness is that you will be glorified. Look at the end of verse 30. Those who he predestined, he called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice that he is speaking in past tense here. He is talking about a future event in past tense. The reason is because there is that much certainty in the way he speaks that it is certain, it is final. Right now, this is true of you in the mind and eyes of God, right now. There is good coming for you, Christian. And it will blossom because of the death of Jesus. And not just your life, but this whole world. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the flow of decay is being reversed. And we have a hope, an eternal hope of glory that one day in eternity, it's not that we're going to get older and weaker and more frail. No, the reversal is going to happen. Every day, there will be more beauty and more glory and greater things to come in a life with our Savior. I want to close with this of our expectation, our waiting from C.S. Lewis at the end of the last battle of the Chronicles of Narnia. He says it so poetically. He says, all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before it. Be reassured today that that is true of you, Christian. Let's pray. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.